In June of 1993, Barbara Connor would visit the residence at 508 Second Street, not knowing what to expect. She's believed to be the first psychic to enter the house to possibly give answers to the strange occurrences happening there. It was she who spoke with the spirit that reached out to her, thereby giving the house its name. She said the spirit's name was Sally, and she was a seven-year-old girl. This is the story of the Sally House. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. The Sally House is actually a popular tourist attraction and is bustling with thrill-seekers and those who want to dip their toe into the paranormal. It's made available for those who think they want to have an encounter with a ghost. Atchison, Kansas, to my surprise, is actually considered quite a haunted little town, which makes the Sally House a star feature. The town embraces its haunted history and also that of Amelia Earhart and the boom of the railroad industry. The home itself was built between 1867 and 1871 by Michael C. Finney. His son, Dr. Charles Finney, would later live in the home. Not only did Dr. Finney live in the home, he also practiced medicine there. And this is where the most famous story to explain why the home is haunted comes from. It goes a little something like this. One dark and stormy night, because that's how all the best spooky stories begin, a mother brought her daughter to the doctor's house. Dr. Finney concluded that the child's appendix was about to burst, so even though he gave her a sedative, he felt he couldn't wait for it to kick in before he started in with the scalpel, leaving the child screaming and suffering in her last moments on earth, and thereby trapped in the home, forced to attack all males that enter. I love a good story as much as the next person, but here at Bag of Bones, it's history first, story second. So... On that note, I couldn't find any documentation that backed up the story. There was a death of a child named Sally in 1905, but no details surrounding it that I could find. But if I was a doctor who botched up an appendectomy on a seven-year-old girl because I was in a hurry, I might have conveniently forgotten to chart that in the records as well. And also, there have been no bodies discovered at the Sally house either. I'm afraid the reason for it being one of the most haunted, most active houses in America is for a much darker, malevolent reason. Heidi Harmon, a psychic that has visited the home and documented her visits, believes that the main entity is that of Dr. Charles Finney. She says, quote, A lot of people felt that Dr. Finney was one of the bad spirits in the house. I don't think Dr. Finney was always like that. I think it's something in the house that attached itself to him a long time ago, end quote. Not only has she felt his presence, she believes she actually saw his apparition standing in a corner, laughing at the crew she was with. She would say, quote, I saw him laughing. Then I heard a little girl say, it's a trick. I'm sorry, you're being tricked, end quote. Robbie Thomas, a spiritual guide and paranormal investigator, would weigh in on the impressions he felt in the house, referring to Dr. Finney, saying, quote, cold, conniving. 
When I first entered the Sally House, it was beyond any scope of imagination. It was the feeling of evil. Charles Finney, in my own feelings, was walking in the shadow of his father. I feel that wrong was done, and it was done by his hand. End quote. Thomas felt that when you take those earthly personal traits and giving them quote unquote power of otherworldly traits only amplifies and gives him permission to do, as Thomas would say, quote, the evil that men do. End quote. Robbie Thomas and sound specialist Michael Esposito would become experts on the Sally House and accumulate plenty of quote unquote proof of paranormal activity over the years. Esposito's specialty is using his high-powered equipment to capture voices, words, and phrases hidden in the ambient noises that the naked ear would not be able to pick up. He says, quote, I've captured a lot of EVP at the Sally House, and these include laughter, actual words, footsteps, and unexplained noises. There have been three documented deaths on the premises. Michael Finney died at the age of 51 in 1872. Later, his son-in-law, William True, would suffer a massive stroke while on vacation and was immediately brought back to his home thinking he would receive better medical care. But he passed away at the age of 56, never regaining consciousness. Agnes Finney True would also pass away in the home in 1939 at the age of 79. Dr. Charles Finney died in 1947 and the house would be sold away from the Finney family. The neighboring house, 510 Second Street, is also said to be built by the Finneys and had some strange occurrences of its own. But according to one psychic, she says that one of the wives of a Finney who killed her son and attempted suicide hangs out next door at 508 and has been open to participate in seances. Maria Miller, Atchison's tourism director, would say the most commonly seen spirit is a woman pacing the floor in the dining room which is where they believe to be where the doctor would see his patients and perform surgical procedures. She would say that a man has been seen standing at the bottom of the stairs, and others have claimed to see a man standing at the window in the master bedroom. Miller herself would admit to several experiences over the years. Some examples she mentioned was toys from the nursery, making noises in response to questions, stones disappearing from her pocket and reappearing somewhere else in the house, and hearing her name, first and last, being said out loud. She would say, quote, I don't expect anyone to believe it if they don't have personal experiences. The fact that people are still able to share experiences in the Sally House tells us that we know it's haunted, end quote. Mary Jane is the manager of the Sally House, who clearly loves her job. She has brought several groups to visit the house and tells of hearing running footsteps on the floors above. She says, quote, I'll be standing still, and sometimes you just feel something brush past you. You just feel it, end quote. She is firmly convinced there is an actual Sally on the premises, and the spirit caters to her belief. She says, Sally loves playing with toys. We have a lot of toys upstairs. We'll say, Sally, if you want to play, throw the ball down the stairs. She wouldn't throw the ball down the stairs, but they look up, and there was a ball at the top of the stairs, end quote. You'll soon see that's how the entities get power. They present as the least scary thing, the children, elderly. Who could be afraid of that? In fact, Marie Jackson, a medium and paranormal investigator from Kansas, gives her opinion. 
She says, I'm severely empathetic. I'm not sure if those two words go together to describe her skill, but it's her title. It means, basically, that she doesn't talk with the spirits, like those who have a conversation. She feels their emotional energy, and those energies have various strengths and levels of anger or malevolence, if that makes sense. She doesn't hesitate to give a warning to those who mess with the spirits. She says, quote, I know a lot of people use devices and Ouija boards and stuff like that. I'm opposed to those things. I know people do it for fun, but you can actually bring things to the surface and it might attach itself to you, the objects around you, and to the people around you, end quote. From my research, the entities in the house seem to respond to males much more than females, and the activity escalates to physical encounters much more with male visitors. Let me back up a sec and introduce you to the Pickmans, Deborah and Tony. They are the couple that brought the hauntings to the attention of others. Former renters would have experiences but explain them away or didn't want to admit to the oddities happening. But the Pickman story couldn't be denied and obtained massive attention by one of the first paranormal investigative teams, a television show called Sightings, back in the 1990s. Psychic Barbara Connors would also put the Pickmans in touch with the popular television show, perhaps realizing that what she'd stepped into was bigger than what she could handle. This would be the first paranormal team with fancy, shiny equipment that would come into the home, promising to keep the family anonymous. Small towns, they don't do well with anonymous. Tony says, quote, It was not an easy decision to come out, especially on television. The worst thing would be that they came out and nothing happened. I grew up in this town, end quote. The lights and equipment of the crew really stirred up the spirits, and they had things to say. The teams had returned several times over a two-year time frame and always left with new footage. In 1994 would be the first time they caught some of the scratches on Tony's torso welt up and bleed before their very eyes. I digress. Let's meet Tony and Deborah Pickman. Hello, hello! Sorry to interrupt our episode, but I wanted to do a shout-out for Bag of Bones supporting company, Lumi Deodorant. Lumi's creator, Shannon Klingman, broke the mold on deodorant models that have been in place and unchanged for the last 100 years. She discovered that aluminum, which is a staple in deodorants, was not only not helping, but could be harmful. She completely broke down the problems of body odor and rebuilt a better solution. She came up with Lumi. Her all-natural option of dealing with body odors from any part of the body stops odors before they happen by neutralizing the odor-causing bacteria that can be found on every human in every crevice. Lumi is made from naturally derived ingredients and is also aluminum-free, baking soda-free, and cruelty-free so you can feel confident using it even on sensitive skin. Plus, it's clinically proven to control odor for 72 hours. So, if you haven't yet, be sure to give Lumi a try by clicking the link in the show notes. Or, if you're already an avid fan, please consider using the Bag of Bones link to feed your Lumi habit as it helps curb the expenses of producing the show. Oh, speaking of which, I need to get back at it. It's 1993 in the small town of Atchison, Kansas and Tony and Deborah were awaiting the birth of their first child. 
They found the home for rent on 2nd Street and in no time were settling in. They had used up all of their savings to have this home to welcome their new son. It was less than six months into their new lease and new life as parents when things started to get strange. Deborah Pickman would say, quote, The TV would come back on after we've turned it off. The stereo would come back on after we've turned it off. My son's musical toys would play for no reason, end quote. Things started happening the way most ghost stories do, and that was through the electrical items. Either the wiring of an old house was going bad, or there was something else happening. Les Smith owned the house at the time, and the Pickman family would be his very first tenants. He had gotten mm, complaints, although that's a harsh word, about electrical issues the Pickmans were having in the home. He would send out professionals, but nothing out of the ordinary could be discovered. I can only imagine the strained relationship this would cause between them, both sides not understanding why things aren't getting resolved. But then, it reached beyond the scope of electric. Photos would be found hanging upside down. Candles in sconces were lit with no one else in the room. And then, Deborah's sister came to visit. First, their ghost playing shy... Most of the odd experiences quieted down, and the sisters were able to have an enjoyable visit. Until the last day before she had to leave. Deborah would say, quote, Tony had gone upstairs and come down and asked why we had arranged the bears in a circle. And Tony adds, I went upstairs to take care of something for the baby, and when I walked in the nursery, there are three or four teddy bears kinda arranged in a circle. I thought it odd, cause Deb, she didn't leave things laying around on the floor. And so I asked what they were doing with the stuffed animals arranged in such a strange manner, and they kind of looked at me clueless. Long story short, we put the teddy bears back, and when we left the room, the light clicked back on. We turned back around, one of the teddy bears was back on the floor. Yeah, kind of freaked us out, end quote. But it didn't stop there. Again, they left the room, and by the time they got to the bottom of the stairs, the light was back on, and the teddy bear was back in the middle of the floor. So, just to be clear, it was not just bumped off of a shelf. It was literally placed in the center of the room. And before you ask, the Pickmans would go on to explain that they ruled out any logical explanation. Breezes, strings, practical jokers, all the things. Then, they were a little more than kinda freaked out. They packed up the necessities and locked themselves in the bedroom. Oh, poor little haunted noobs. Deborah was the first to accept that it was probably a ghost, while Tony refused. It would take a bit more convincing. Deborah would say, quote, I always had an interest in having a spirit. I had friends that had encountered with spirits, so this was very enticing to me. I think that it had me wrapped around its finger very quickly. I wasn't on guard about it at all. End quote. Oh, Deborah, it's not a puppy. Our empathetic psychic Marie Jackson would say, almost as a warning, quote, Spirits were once in human form, so if you want to summon something, talk to it as if it were in a human form. Be very careful of what you ask it to do. You could essentially be bringing something to the surface that you can't get rid of. End quote. Tony, on the other hand, needed proof, maybe? The things that were happening now became regular occurrences and no longer phased him. The pictures turned upside down, the ceiling fans on, having to turn off the television several times. If they're going to keep turning on appliances, why couldn't it be the coffee maker in the morning? 
I don't see how any tenant could object to that. I'm just saying. Anyway, one afternoon, Tony and one of his younger brothers were, um, antagonizing the whatever it was. Daring it. You know, that thing that you see all the investigators do in the shows that I just cringe the whole time. One of these days, they're going to get the response they're calling for. And on this particular day, it happened. A minor occurrence compared to possession, but it still happened. Tony's brother asked the spirit to show itself, and while everyone was watching, it made a stuffed teddy bear spin in a circle in the middle of the floor. His brother never came to the house again. But as if giving the spirit permission, it began to let its presence be known, even showing off for others. But Tony refused to acknowledge it or speak to it, while Deborah treated it like a pet or an extra child. They decided it was time to bring in the professionals. They had a friend of a friend of a friend who knew a psychic and invited her to come over to see what she could discover. This would be Barbara Connors, who was originally from California. Deborah would recall, quote, It was communicated to her that there was a little girl ghost and she was about seven years old. Her name was Sally. Some of the ailments she had lived with in her life, things she liked to play with in the house, but basically told me that I needed to communicate with this spirit and tell her, No, you can't play with this, or No, you can't wake the baby. You know, things like that. Time to treat her as if she was right there. It was what we thought we had to do to work through the problems that we were having, end quote. Tony added, quote, Yeah, the psychist told us to tell it, Don't be lighting fires. If you're here to protect the baby, then that could be bad for the whole house, end quote. Yes, fires. Apparently, as things would escalate, the spirit would light the tea light candles, and one experience I found told about a taper candle being lit and the wax melting upwards. The couple would tell of the toys going up in flames, the ears being burnt off a wooden rocking horse, a flaming pacifier that would come flying through the room and landing right in front of them. When they picked it up, fire out, but still smoldering, the plastic was black and melted. But, trusting the psychic, they followed their new regime of living with a seven-year-old ghost. Early in their paranormal experiences, they believed the ghost they referred to as Sally was harmless, and Deborah would feel sorry for it. She'd say, quote, I felt bad that she had nobody on her end. I tried to be inclusive and include her in the family. I invited her to sit on my lap when I would read to the baby, or when I knew the baby was tied down on the changing table, I would ask her to watch Taylor while I ran to the other room to get something. Knowing that he was safe, but trying to include as you would a seven-year-old girl, end quote. I'm pretty sure that's in the top ten suggestions on the list of how to become possessed. And just when Tony was questioning the presence, he would see a full apparition of an innocent-looking, sweet little girl who he claimed was just as surprised as he was that they could see each other. The sighting did not make Tony more accepting so the spirit would show itself in other forms, almost as if trying to test the waters to something he could accept. They were lulled into a false sense of calm because nothing would happen, and Sally would be quiet for weeks at a time. And then, suddenly, a small fire would appear. And this just became <laughs> everyday life, as if to say, oh, the ghost got into the matches again. 
they'd blow out the fire and continue about their day as if every family had pesky ghosts in their house too. But then, as the Pigmans like to say, things really began to escalate. Looking back, Deborah would say, quote, We think it's one main spirit that may have a collection of human spirits and may be able to project itself as whatever it wants to gain acceptance from those that it's presenting to. We know there's other human spirits that are there as well that are fearful of what's there. End quote. The spirit was very different in the presence of Deborah as opposed to Tony. He'd say, quote, Things began happening to me that could in no way be a little girl. I mean, what little girl at that age would think to do this stuff? Not just the fires, but there was scratching. And then there were times I would get feelings. I would get really angry feelings while I was at home. It was an anger that would just come over you where you'd feel like you want to hurt someone or just be really violent. I couldn't explain that, and it just didn't feel like a little girl, end quote. The spirits were constantly working on Tony, whether he realized it or not. They kept him drained, mentally fatigued, which is said gives them easier access. Tony would describe trying to sleep and hear scratching on the walls or ceilings around him trying to keep him awake. Voices, whispers. He would explain that it sounded like, Six or seven voices all talking at once in his ear or inside his head. Many of the most volatile apparitions would show themselves either right before he drifted to sleep or would wake him up. This is a time he felt that he saw the true face of a demon. It would begin as the face of the child and melted into an animal with humanistic features. It was Tony who would also receive the bodily harm, and it showed up as scratches. He would be minding his own business and suddenly would stop and raise his shirt and there would be scratches on his skin, some swelling up, some bleeding, and others were faint. Tony says, quote, It would feel almost like an icicle going through you. Not that I've had an icicle go through me, but it was that cold. A really intense feeling that would shoot through you and usually when I felt it, almost 90% of the time I knew I was being scratched. There was about three times when it felt like someone really punched the hell out of me, end quote. They would eventually get worse. If you go to www.ragtagnetwork.com slash bagofbonespodcast, there should be pictures there, and wow. And the more they tried to find answers, the more agitated the spirits would become. But more on that later. Deborah would add, quote, over the years since living in the house and all of our research and all of our experiences there draws us to the conclusion that it never was the little girl's spirit. In the beginning, it showed itself or animated itself as a little girl. And when Tony didn't accept that, it changed to presenting itself as someone who looked like me and then someone who looked like an older woman. And then when those scenarios didn't work and he couldn't accept those willingly, it started going at him from a different avenue, through dreams and his state of mind. We came to that conclusion after we left the house that there was much more to it than an innocent little spirit, end quote. This was when Tony was feeling violent tendencies, which he'd never felt before, and the physical attacks were happening. Deborah, on the other hand, was completely unpulsed. Looking back, they could see that it was the demonic spirits manipulating her as well, but just in a different way. 
She was accepting to the things happening in her home, and as she says, that's just what's happening in our life right now. Which I found interesting. She had no fear, and so did not get that knee-jerk reaction to move out of the house, as every audience member would shout to their screens, Why don't they just move out? Even though she could see what was happening to her husband, she couldn't make herself care or even sense danger. They dealt with things for almost two years until one day, Tony was waiting for Deborah to come home. He was filled with rage and hate and was sitting there calmly with a knife and every intention to kill his wife. He recalls, quote, I remember that morning when I was coming out of the bedroom and something hit me from behind. I don't know whether it went into me or just pushed me, but with enough force to throw me forward and into the railing and stairs, it knocked out three rungs of the railing, end quote. He had planned to kill her that day. The baby was at his mother's house, and when Deborah didn't come home as scheduled, he had to go pick up their son. He was so grateful for that happening. Quote, I was able to get a clear head. Had I not had to do that, I shudder to think what would have happened when Deb got home. End quote. They had argued for months to leave, Tony wanting to go, Deb wanting to stay, arguing that they invested so much into the house. They had the costs of a new baby. They had a lease. But Tony saw the writing on the wall, or his skin by this time, not to mention his thoughts, and knew that it was time to get out to save his family. On that night, she saw something in his eyes that woke her up. Tony didn't tell her about his thoughts until years later, but that night, she agreed that it was time to get out. They moved within a week. I have been getting a few questions about offering suggestions. First of all, absolutely, yes! I love hearing your ideas of what you are curious about. I am such a research nerd and I love learning the new stories for episodes. Second, here are some parameters so you get an idea if it's a good fit for this podcast. The topic needs to be based in America. The event needed to happen in America or played out in America. If it's about a specific person, they can be born elsewhere or died elsewhere, but the majority of their life or their contribution to the story needs to be based in America. Next, it needs to be set in the time frame prior to 1969. Yes, sometimes if the story is so compelling or so requested, I'll slip over, but I like to keep it pre-1970. It has to be something within our bag of bones context. For example, my mother keeps asking me to do an episode of Roy Rogers, but I can't because, well, his story is just so darn happy. Around here, we settle in with the dark and creepy, tragic and horrifying. Throw in some peculiar traditions and folklore, and essentially you have the Bag of Bones podcast playlist. And finally, it must be based in fact. I put a ton of hours in research for each and every episode to make sure that I am giving you the most honest and up-to-date information for each subject. So if I can't find a lot of detail about something or I can't substantiate it, then I won't be able to use it. Yes, folklore can fall into a cloudy section, but usually with this topic, enough people believe it and there is a foundational source, like where the story began, that I can stem from. And that's it. 
I'll post these guidelines on both my website, elizabethbougeret.com, and at the ragtagnetwork.com for easy reference. Now, before you start sending me hate mail defending Roy Rogers, I love Roy Rogers. I also love all the other topics and dates and countries. I listen to other podcasts that cover all the things that I do not. But I had to set parameters, otherwise the Bag of Bones podcast would have been all over the place and not stand out in any crowd. But now when someone asks, hey, do you know of a great history podcast or Sure, there's a million true crime podcasts out, but what about the crime of the last century? Hopefully Bag of Bones podcast is on the tip of your tongue. Yes, your requests are most welcome. In fact, the first episodes of a new season will all be requested material. So hurry up and get yours in. Quote from the Sightings Introduction For several months, Sighting has been investigating a stunning paranormal event unfolding in America's heartland. A young family is being plagued by ghostly activity that ranges from the innocuous to bizarre, and it won't go away. We called in renowned psychic Peter James to see if he could communicate with the entity and make the haunting activity stop. The television show would end up continuing their investigation for a little over a year, and the stuff they caught on camera was legendary. I watched the sightings video happily. It can be found on YouTube. The link is in the show notes if you're curious. In the video, they had their professional guy, Peter James, just walk along as they filmed. I found it interesting that every time Mr. James would ping on something, like, quote-unquote, seeing and hearing a little girl ghost, and she tells him her name is Sally, Deborah would smile like a proud mama. Or maybe it's the smile of validation. I don't know. Take a look and let me know what you see. Side note, before even entering the house, and mind you, this was before the powers of the internet, Peter James would pause before entering the house, saying, quote, I just saw the face of a little girl looking out that window, end quote. Ugh, chills. Peter tells Tony there's nothing to be afraid of, and then, at that moment, the letters M.C. are carved into the skin of Tony's back. I think they might need a new specialist. Side note, the initials of the builder of the home was M.C. Finney. Coincidence? Mm. Ah, at this point, I, <laughs> I really don't know. Tony would recall, quote, One time I remember being interviewed by sightings, and I was holding the baby standing in the doorway of the kitchen, and it just felt like somebody kidney-punched me as hard as they could. I almost dropped the baby. I screamed out, my knees buckled, and luckily I kind of fell into the wall. And sure enough, I had a big cross, or X, on my back. End quote. Lee Smith, the owner of the property, would admit to being a skeptic around the whole paranormal topic, but would consent to allow the show sightings to come in and do a reading of the house. Before the team left the Sally house, Les would be a believer. In the years that followed, he would be happy to share some of his examples with interviewers that asked. Once he acknowledged that there was a spirit in the house, that spirit reached out to him while he was inside the walls and while driving past in his truck. He would explain that while driving past the house and only just in front of the house, in this one particular example, his driving lights would go off, 
his radio would produce only static, and his dome light would turn on. And once he passed the property, it would go back to normal. And yes, he did repeat this mm, experiment several times driving in both directions. Over the years, Deborah Pickman, looking for answers to the questions that plagued her, would visit the house several more times. She was fascinated with the new instruments that had been created to document voices and movement. She would share these discoveries with Tony, who not only wanted nothing to do with the house, but would even go out of his way not to even pass the house when driving. He would confess that it was a constant challenge to fight thoughts about the house. He says there was always a pull from the house, and more than once he would wake up on the front porch of the house not remembering how he got there. There is an interesting story not often told about the front bedroom closet, which was the nursery. Most of the stories usually revolve around the toys in the middle of the room. However, paranormal investigator Robbie Thomas believed that a teenage girl had been held captive in said closet, and her presence can still be felt. He would also pick up the presence of five other female spirits he believed were trapped in the home, each one giving him a name. Mary Jane, the manager of the Sally House, tells a story of one of the prior tenants referring to the same closet. A mother was looking for her child since she wouldn't answer her calls and heard her voice in said closet. When she opened the door, the daughter was sitting on the floor with a mound of toys. She asked the daughter who she was talking to. She exclaimed she was talking with her friend, right here, as if it was obvious, and there was no one there. Also, more than one former tenant would claim that she lived in the house, and a child would have an imaginary friend they would call Sally, long before investigators and psychics found their way to the home. The sightings investigations stopped not long after new tenants moved into the home, and I couldn't really find any information after the Peckmans left. But I guess things didn't work out for the tenants or any other tenants after that because the city now runs the house and the activity is just as strong as ever. I believe the entity that has made the Sally House its home base is loving all the attention. After more than 10 years, Tony would be convinced to go back. He got scratched the first few times, but then it stopped. They would go back and sometimes nothing would happen. Those demons, they know how to play you. 14 years later in 2007, they would return. Tony would recall, quote, We should have known better. A fellow investigator thought as soon as we pulled up, they saw something dark get up out of a chair and walk past a window. That should have been our first hint, but we went in anyway. It was hard to breathe. There was a heaviness in the house, and we should have, once again, turned around and left, but we continued, end quote. Deb continues with that thought, quote, Within ten minutes of being there, Tony was in the master bedroom and getting sick to his stomach. He was taking pictures, and I was using sage. I saw him get lifted about a foot to eight inches and quickly hit the wall behind him and then he dropped to the floor and couldn't get up, end quote. Tony said it felt like he'd been hit by a car. The force was so hard that it knocked him out of his laced-up, steel-toed boots he was wearing. Knocked unconscious for only a few moments, when he woke up, he saw his wife next to him trying to revive him. When he tried to stand, he realized he was being held down by an invisible force. 
he would recall it felt like an elephant was sitting on his chest. His face was turning red, and he recalls nearly losing consciousness again when one of the paranormal investigators' team, Renee, came running around the corner yelling at it to release him in the name of Jesus Christ, and on the second command, it did. Deborah said, quote, He ended up with, I want to say, 58 scratches on the front of him and 30-some on his back. He had been knocked out of his laced-up leather work boots. The phone on his hip was literally melted. The batteries in the camera were melted. We realized at that point that we were misguided. To feel that he was safe in that house, or that it was okay for him to be in that house, only to be basically ambushed by what was there, end quote. Tony would tell those who asked, and everyone asks, that one of the ways he would get through this time in his life was through faith. He says, quote, This whole Sally House experience has affected my life. It has brought me so much closer to God. Before, you know, you hear about evil, but until you live through something like this and you experience evil on a first-hand level and see some of the things I saw, you don't really know how bad it can be. The only way that I could deal with it, thankfully, was through the help of God. I believe that's what got me out alive. I felt evil. I saw some things that I hope nobody ever has to see. End quote. And while at first they, mostly Tony, wanted to keep his identity to himself, they realized they might be able to help others. And they have been invited to all kinds of events and are usually available to do interviews for the asking. Deborah says, quote, Just walking away from this and seeing that we weren't the only ones experiencing this was helpful. End quote. She would actually go on to write a book, The Sally House Haunting, A True Story. Tony would say, quote, You know, I could close the door and shut myself in and never talk about it, but not only does it help me mentally to talk about it and share, but when you can talk about it with other paranormal people, it really opens up things. And I'm hoping that by me talking about it, it might be able to save somebody else from going through this. Because I think people really need to know there is evil out there. There are hauntings that can be overwhelming and you have no control over it. We dedicate about a week every two months to go to conventions to share our stories. I was nervous at first, he continues, coming out and talking about it. But the more I do, I'm finding out the response has been great. I have people come up to me and say, you've changed stuff in our life. You've really helped us. And that's kind of what I love to do, because when I was going through it, there was no help. There was nobody to reach out to. I didn't even know who to talk to who'd been going through the same thing. And to sit down with somebody that's going through it, and they understand that they can get through this, you can make it through it, you'll be all right. I'm hoping that through these things, I can help somebody. I didn't believe in the paranormal, and look what happened to me, end quote. Final note, they do not encourage the curious to visit the house. They have said in multiple interviews that people reach out to them about experiences they've had after leaving the house. Maybe not while inside, but 10 days, a few weeks after leaving. Deborah warns, quote, We don't advocate for anybody to go into the house because it's just waiting for an opportunity. End quote. The Sally House is still open for tours and overnight stays, and the demonic activity du jour 
According to the TripAdvisor recommendations, they say the self-guided tours are always overcrowded. So maybe save your money for an overnight adventure. Or, mm, I don't know, heed the advice of the Pikmins and steer clear. I hope you've enjoyed this week's spooky episode. The Sally House has actually been recommended by several people. If you have a topic you'd like me to research, let me know. In the meantime, I'll see you over at the socials at Bag of Bones Podcast on both Facebook and Instagram. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret with the Bag of Bones Podcast. Until next time. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.